This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today is an award-winning librettist, a lyricist, and the Chicago rep for the Dramatist Guild of America. She has co-written more than a dozen musicals, and her original songs have been featured on Good Morning America, The Today Show, and NPR's Morning Edition. We talk about the architecture of musicals, how getting someone to like a musical is like getting them to like sushi, and Stephen Sondheim's affinity for perfect rhyme. Since the recording of this episode, Mr. Sondheim passed away at the age of 91, leaving a legacy of extraordinary musicals that have impacted many writers, including my next guest. Coming up is my dialogue with a woman with a talent for tunes, Cheryl Coons. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, or captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Welcome, Cheryl. Hey, good to see you, Pat. You have so many mysterious words in your hyphens. <laughs> I, I think we have to start with a little bit of a glossary here, okay? Okay. So I want you to explain what a librettist is. A librettist is somebody who writes the words for either musical theater or opera. So it's whatever the lyrics are for the music that is being sung or performed. Right. And a lyricist is the writer of the songs within the musical. Yeah. A librettist can also be the book writer. A lot of musical theater people just divide it into book writer and lyricist and don't talk about librettist. But some people call themselves librettist. It's kind of interchangeable. I don't think most people who aren't in musical theater know that the book is the play or the dialogue versus the song. Right. So when you say that you write book, the book, they think, oh, is it the after? Is it the making of the musical? No. The book is the story, essentially, too. And even though we divide it in musical theater, we think of three functions. We think of book writer, lyricist, and composer. The truth is that every, every one of those functions carries what is called book as far as storytelling. So even the music is telling part of the story, but especially the structure of the piece, like the way the story is divided and what parts are carried in song and what parts are carried in dialogue. The music is such an emotional roadmap. Yes. That that is so much different than a play. Energy. Yeah. It reminds me, I, I use a couple of different metaphors for it, but one that I really like is it reminds me of amusement park rides because you're stepping into something that's designed to give you a kind of energetic experience. And there are highs and lows, like a good roller coaster, right? Part of the fun of the roller coaster is the tick, tick, tick when you're going up the hill because you know it's building enthusiasm, anticipation, sometimes terror for what happens next. And musicals kind of work that way too as energy rides. Talk to me about the necessity of theater, of bringing people together for musical theater. Yes. Well, we're, of course, missing that right now. But um, what's very interesting is even just experiences that I've had with some of the online classes that I've been teaching where we've been uh, listening to song lyrics and recordings from musicals, but also watching the lyrics go by. I sort of share my screen in, in the platforms that I teach on and so that people can see what the lyrics are going by, that people are have, have a visceral response to the idea of applause and to the sound of applause. Uh, a couple of the songs have applause cues in them, and there is this palpable feeling 
when I stop sharing my screen and we all look at one another of what it feels like to hear an audience doing that, to have a communal celebration of story. There's a, a primal experience of storytelling, I think, that has to do with the community being around the campfire, right? It's that all of us are sharing this together and there is a storyteller or there are storytellers, but that we're all in the process of receiving something that is meant for us as a community story. And musical theater particularly is community oriented. A lot of the stories in musicals, you can represent a community on stage in ways that you really can't a lot of times, especially in with budgets being what they are in non-musical theater. And even in musical theater, we're getting small casts sometimes because of this reason. But it, it goes back to that feeling that the story is meant for the community, that the community goes on a journey as listeners. And a lot of times in musical theater, the community that is represented by the ensemble also goes on a journey during the course of the story. And so it, I think it's primal that way. And there's something about being in the same room at the same time, experiencing music in particular, it speaks to us emotionally. Music does that whether we're listening by ourselves or whether we're listening in a group. But I think there's a reason why there are still concerts. It's so, so easy not to leave our homes. And especially now, you know, we're not leaving our homes so much. But I think there's a reason why, even with the preponderance of ways to experience music at home, that we still go out and hear music together. It's, com it's again, community. Right. I think a lot of people, particularly at this moment in time, are grieving the gathering, the idea of being in one place at one moment. Yeah. So it, we haven't had our creativity stolen from us, but in many ways, the final reward which is the experiencing, the idea that a person on stage is guiding us in this emotional rocket sled ride. Yeah. That can be any form of feeling. Musical theater is a unique animal, and you know it very well as a teacher of story. There was a workshop that I went to, but also you've written dozens of original uh, musicals, either the book or the lyrics. So you are a sort of a master puzzler in a way. <laughs> Because you mentioned structure earlier. So yeah. talk to me about doing the puzzle to put this picture together that has emotional jigsaw pieces and story pieces and, and how that tracks, because it's very specific. Yes. And what we're essentially doing is taking a life form that's very organic, which is story. And we're trying to figure out a way in terms of creating something that an audience can receive, that that life form can be delivered efficiently and also in a way that heightens its qualities so that it showcases what the meaning is of the story. It's wrestling to the ground, this very organic and lively form of ideas called story, and then trying to help us communicate that clearly and directly. And it's challenging. People think that musicals are lighthearted, which many of them are, and entertaining, which many of them are, and tend to dismiss the idea of the amount of not only craft and skill, but truly inspiration that makes them what they are, which is a very complicated storytelling form. And people tend to denigrate them sometimes, you know? Well, I don't think they realize it's the longest, slowest turning ship in the ocean in terms of <laughs> from the moment you get on it to when it's going to hit the audience, years can be passing by. Yeah. 
And so you need a theme and a story that is going to resonate universally five years later, eight years later, sometimes Yes. when it's still got a universal truth to it, right? You can't write something about what's happening on the news today unless it's going to be forever historically newsworthy? Well, it's very tricky because you think to yourself, if you're writing a play, for example, you think to yourself, this is a room I should like to be in for a year because it's probably going to take me a year to get to a draft of a play. With musicals, the gestation period is sometimes seven years, sometimes nine years, sometimes 10 years. I think Anais Mitchell with Town. I think it was something like 17 years from her first inkling of that story. Wow. And it, it just makes you think, what will sustain us? It's not even about relevance in terms of news, but what story will sustain me as an author that, that will keep me fascinated for seven years or 10 years in its development. It's very challenging because not only do story content sometimes become different in a different time period or irrelevant sometimes. Think about this analogy. Think about how many plots of old movies would be solved if there were cell phones. You know, if only somebody could pick up the phone and get the information that they needed, right? Right. It's the same thing with topical stories today is sometimes a problem gets solved by the time you start writing about it. Yeah, we had that in a play that I wrote where it preceded cell phones. As the play went on, it was like, well, why doesn't he just go to his laptop to look that up? Or why right. doesn't he use spell checker? Or what? And we're like, because like his battery's dead. Like we we began to have to write all the reasons why we didn't have a cell phone in the room and a computer and on hand. And you know, we had to sequester these folks in an organic way to get rid of those fixes. Yeah. It also makes you think in terms of sustaining not only relevance and what information will be changed, but also the style in which the music is being used and the style of the music itself and, you know, theatrical styles, because that changes not quite as fast as fashion changes, honestly, but, you know, with the kind of impact where something can just seem extremely dated that you've been working on for quite a while and you know, it's pretty amazing. When you think about the length of the gestation period of these things, it's amazing to find something like a Hamilton that can capture not only the imagination of its creators and, and a Broadway audience, but really the country and now a much wider audience since it's streaming as well. Let's talk about some of the mechanics if it's not dipping too much into your teacher mode. But there's just some parts for a normal theater-going audience, a ticket buyer. They may not be aware of when you transition from dialogue into a song, like the reason that the song is necessary at that point, right? Yes, and that's yes. a very critical part of the song plotting, like where do these belong and what are they about? Yeah, it's really interesting because there are ways in which we think about certain kinds of musical theater songs that have been around for a long time. Like there's something called an I want song, which often defines or establishes a character at the beginning of their journey and tells us what the story in some ways is going to be about, at least in terms of that character's goal. Sometimes there's a thing called an I am song that shows up in roughly the same spot. That's more about who they are. And we don't quite know yet what the adventure is that they're going to be on. So that's, that's something we see in a lot of shows. I heard the wonderful Stephen Schwartz talk about this at one of the Dramatist Guild 
national conferences, he was saying that it got to be a thing that everybody knew what a want song was. And so they stopped writing them because, you know, everybody knew what one was and they, they wanted to be surprising and innovative. But then they found that if you just go back and try to write one, a lot of times you solve a bunch of story problems because people weren't, the character wasn't getting the right launch at the beginning. So that's one of the types of songs. That's part of the structure. The I want song, while it's simply named or the I need song or the whatever, that is part of the story construction that says in all story writing, hero, goal, obstacle, right? And a yes. hero with a goal is the want. Yes. In um, Little Shop of Horrors, she sings a song about the little place that's green. What's the name Somewhere of it? That's green, Somewhere yes. that's green. Somewhere that's green, which is this beautiful idea of a picket fence and a yard. One thing I learned from Frank Oz, who directed the movie, was originally the payoff in the end when she gets eaten by the plant, she does end up somewhere that's green. Absolutely, ironically. Not, right, and it's not <laughs> the thing we all think she's going to get, right? So that's like bonus points of cleverness and craftiness. And I'm not, did that end up playing that way in the movie? But it, No, they changed it. They did the mythic thing. In myth stories, oftentimes the hero returns to the beginning and a, a cycle starts again. So the last image of the film is uh, she and Seymour have gone into the beautiful picket fence vision of somewhere that's green, but in the garden in their front yard is a tiny little plant, little Audrey too. Uh -huh. So we know that the seeds of destruction, but they did shoot it both ways. They shot the film with the original ending only even expanded. The original ending of the musical is everybody gets consumed by the plant. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they shot the film with uh, sort of Godzilla style with the plant careening through big high rises and, and uh, office buildings and stuff. It's an amazing sequence. And one of the things, because Frank came from a background in puppetry, that wasn't special effects or CGI. They made that all happen with crazy, crazy puppeteers, yeah. whatever they had to do to make it happen. So there's always a lot of magic and stage, stage craftsmanship uh, in musicals. I mean, that's one thing that really attracts me to it. But I do think that in addition to I Want Songs, there's there's a whole structure from what is your opening number? Yes. What's the 11 o'clock song? To what's yes. And yeah, let's, let's talk about 11 o'clock numbers because that used to mean something different. 11 o'clock numbers used to be these big sort of toe tapping, sit down, you're rocking the boat, up tempo numbers. And the, they were functional because if Broadway shows started at 8 or 8.30 or 9 p.m., you needed an energy boost and an ensemble number doing something up tempo was a big energy boost at that time. But now they've come to be more like 11th hour songs from the hero talking about what they now know as a result of the story action or what decision they're now making. It's often a, if you use dramatic terms, a crisis decision moment for the, the hero or a self-revelation is another way of talking about it. And so it relates often to that want song at the beginning. So you have what I, what I like to think of is for a lot of characters, there's a three-song spine that if you had to really look at it, the want song in the beginning or the I am song in the beginning, the 11 o'clock number at the end, and then oftentimes at inter, right before intermission, if there's a two-act structure with an intermission, there's another turning point for the character, either a dramatic reversal or a moment when the character almost has 
what they want in their grasp. And so there's a celebration kind of moment. So that's another one of those. And when you think about they're typically in older golden age musicals, the standard was between 11 and 14 musicalized moments in the first act. Well, now, you know, sometimes there are, depending on how much music is in the show, there can be 20, you know, it depends on the show. But when you think about the numbers of and the different kinds of songs that can happen over the course of a musical, it gets to be complicated because you've got the main character and keeping them on track and this sort of three song spine bookend. Then you've got many other characters that have to be musicalized and groups within the musical and small scenes that become in themselves songs. It's one of the most complex storytelling forms and people just don't recognize how complex it is. And when it's really well done, when people go on that ride and it's all very satisfying, it's a mystery to them. They don't even know why they're feeling the way they're feeling. Yeah. It's the most collaborative of the arts. Yeah. The amount of people that are involved in the birthing process. Absolutely. Are, you end up donating parts to the baby. Totally. And even an actor's performance can color the way that the writer sees the role and can either the actor's performance or sometimes the discoveries that are made when an actor who has a certain flavor or disposition and brings that persona, that innocence, if it's if it's a more innocent type of character or a particular sensuality for some characters, they bring in a color that you hadn't thought of for a certain role. Sometimes using multiple actors to develop a piece will also help with the dimensionality of the character because you've got all these different colors in the palette now. So-and-so brought this to the role. It's heartbreaking for the actors sometimes. I can also tell you, as somebody that's been developing a musical over the last nine years, that the actors that we worked with at the beginning of the process who were perfect for the roles you know, are now aging out. It doesn't mean that they didn't contribute to our process. They're just not right to carry the role anymore, but they still offered the qualities that they have personally that affected what we wrote. So we say thank you. Yes, but it's very evident when you're into a youth thing of like Newsies or one of those kinds of shows, there's an always changing cast. Yeah. Well, it's like graduation day. See you later. Yeah, I was thinking about... Uh, the old television show Green Acres, where the pigs kept getting too big for the. <laughs> it's like, what a perfect analogy for actors. They would all love to hear me say that. There is this moment that I heard, again, I'm fairly new to musicals, and I had a great partner who was deeply baptized in it as a uh, composer and a conductor and all that. So I learned in the sidecar of success. You hear that the characters sing when they've reached a point where they can't talk. The emotion swells. It requires it to be sung. Yes. They dance when that reaches that other level. Yes. I've also heard it said, so it's characters, uh, you know, sing when they can no longer speak. And then I've also heard the idea that besides emotion carrying music, the characters don't live in musicals until they sing. I've heard that one too, hmm. that we don't really experience them until they have their music has defined them. It just, and again, that's not hard and fast for every show, but it's the idea is music carries character. Think of Mrs. Lovett in Sweeney Todd. Think of the, the way that character is written. 
It's in the sound. The sound of her music is who she is, scattered and then sinister. A story like that, which is about making humans into pies, essentially. <laughs> also, yeah. there's some kind of gifts that musicals give you. And one of those I, I know is that just, just the idea of a soliloquy, that there used to be a time where an actor could step forward and tell you all what they're thinking and whatever. And it, it's an awkward thing anyway, theatrically. But in a musical, it's a great device to have a song. They're, sure. they're pondering. There's a conflict. There's a conditional love song. It lets us inside their feelings. And so yeah. we, we then have this secret we get to carry in the story until it, we want that tension to be resolved. But I find yeah. that in, in regular plays and comedies and stuff, it's just really weird if somebody looks in the mirror and says, oh, one day I'm going to do this and I hope I can find this my way into this thing. Yes. It's another reason why people are disparaging of musicals is because there are a lot of people who are working in the theater, who are theater professionals, who are very respectful of musicals, especially playwrights like Tony Kushner, who have written a couple of them and know how daunting the form is. And sometimes within education, there are practitioners of non-musical theater that kind of disrespect the form, not realizing. And the fact that there's a soliloquy might be part of that. It's like, why are you telling us you should be showing us? And the most artful musical writers actually reveal by, by, by um, showing rather than telling. A solo might have irony in it, as opposed to, I'm going to explain why I'm feeling right. the way I'm feeling. Right. Well, it, I'm interested in why it's so difficult to transfer a musical from the stage to other mediums, sometimes to film yeah. or television. Tell me what your sense of that is, why that's a difficult transfer. I'll return back to speaking about uh, Sweeney Todd, because Sweeney Todd is an example of a film that was really conceived as a film version of the story, as opposed to a filmed stage version. And it's really interesting because they chose to eliminate the ensemble and speaking about how important the ensemble is to the process of community and how much that's a part of musical theater storytelling to see a film where, where only the principal characters are singing and they are quite often in inner monologue um, because of the way the film is shot. And it's a different form. And, and you miss that. The, there's a sense of energy that goes from the uh, community on stage that's performing to the audience and back again. So it's a circle that happens when you're in the audience of a really good musical. And we don't have the circle in a film. We have, especially if you think about characters at the end of dance sequences in film, you often see them gesturing toward the camera while breathing, you know, heavily. There's <laughs> a sense of, yeah. and the energy doesn't come back at them because there's no audience for it to come back. And so this, the communal experience has changed. It's funny, too, uh, because uh, Rent, as an example, the songs were still great, and they made yeah. the movie, and they actually tried to take it out of a one space and put it into the various locations, yes. and yet somehow it felt like an unsatisfying journey, and yet yeah. the music is beautiful, everything's still there, but it's some things have made a, a very nice transfer, but other things not so much. Yeah, they call that opening out when they take something from stage and put it on film and then find ways to take the story to other locations. And what's interesting is that it's meant to be an expansive idea. 
and oftentimes is not expansive. It, it it's dilutes that power or that focus. And so the, I think the Sweeney Todd thing was very interesting, the film version, the, the Johnny Depp film that just came out, because I think you do get a different use of music in that film because of the internal monologue and because of the way it takes the narrative and puts it as a psychological journey as opposed to a story that's affecting the community primarily. The the show is all about community. The audience, I mean, the uh, ensemble sings at the beginning of the stage musical, attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. They sing it again at the end. They are here to tell us a lesson. They're telling us a lesson as the ensemble. Then all the way through the story, they transform. They get really greedy when they start enjoying the meat pies at the top of act two. And they're on a journey too, as, as well as the main character. And it's a, just a different experience from this very internal story um, that we see in the film version. I think a Greek chorus has proven to be a something that an audience always understands where they fit in the picture when that yeah. happens. Yeah. That's a great insight. Yeah. Yeah. The the fact that it's us in some way. Right. And they're they're standing in. You know, I, I heard a really wonderful talk from uh, Marcia Norman at the Dramatist Guild Institute's musical theater intensive. And she was talking about musicals often begin with a divided community. And there's often a representative from each of the parts of the community and somehow some sort of healing or love that takes place between those two characters rejoins the world and it's reassuring. Like the world is brought together by these characters finding their way to one another. And that may be another reason why people are a little cynical about musicals. Well, I'll tell you why I'm cynical about musicals. Now, I'm probably not the only one going on records as not cats didn't do a thing for me, right? So one of my earliest experiences is I went to see cats and I had a friend in it in a touring production. And it is to me, no complaint about Andrew Lloyd Webber's music, but it is an example of how the some of the parts do not make a whole. And yes. when I was there, I was like, <laughs> okay, they got the costumes. The makeup's amazing. People are dancing. There was no story. There was no armature. And it wasn't until later that I found out it was written based on a book of poems about cats. But the family that licensed that restricted them from changing anything or putting a story on it, which is exactly what it felt like to me. It's like, oh, this is the most unsatisfying <laughs> meal of cat food. And afterwards yeah. I was like, why do I feel so empty? I now know all these characters <laughs> and they show up at some ball, nothing, What what's happening? It's, a, it's definitely an experiential piece. And I have another friend that saw that when he was 14 years old and it changed his life and that became what he wanted to do with his life is he saw cats and I'm withholding any kind of opinion about <laughs> about it's cats. It's important that you don't. But but here's the, the, yeah. the reason I bring it up though <laughs> is that the transfer to the most recent movie version, which I, I'm not fair to judge because from the trailer, I the disdain came back. I had a triggered post-traumatic stress syndrome to the flesh. <laughs> Post-traumatic cat's disease. Yeah, I did. Yes. But but again, many, many things happened, though. And part of it was just the idea that instead of this glorious makeup they were built on, they were suddenly doing that with CGI. They were sort of taking the theater out of it. Each level of subtracting of theater made me feel even more disgusted. They did add mice. Oh, they, they did. They added mice yes. and they added roaches, I believe. Okay. So it's like... <laughs> 
So I guess, but it, that didn't seem to help at the box office. No. The roaches. It's just one of those things. Like a person doesn't like meatloaf or something, right? Uh, you know what? It's sushi. I, sushi is, is my favorite analogy for talking about musicals because you really should never attempt to talk somebody into sushi who just can't get past the raw fish thing. Like it's like, if you like sushi, you love it. That, very, that's very a great analogy. Like, yeah, it's a great analogy. Yeah. I use this in collaboration too, just getting a little bit more universal than musical theater. But a lot of times creative decisions in any collaborative form are like this. You really see it as it's sushi and I love sushi and you don't feel it. You're not feeling the sushi. So why would I ever waste my time trying to talk you into liking sushi? Correct. Like you can see the point, my point of view on sushi, but I would be wasting time and energy and probably damaging our relationship <laughs> to say, you must try raw fish. You must, you must. Especially you know? when people do it again. No, no, you haven't seen a good one. Like, come on, yes. this is a better sushi place, right? Yeah. Um, well, that's a fabulous, fabulous analogy. I like it a lot. I just, you know, I'm teaching a Sondheim class right now, and we have a naysayer in the class amongst 17 people that are, oh, so happy to be talking about Stephen Sondheim once a week. And they bring their programs from when they flew to London to see whatever the show was. And they bring their letters from Stephen Sondheim. I mean, it's really like a, a secret cult. And is it, is <laughs> and, it called Sondheim on Sushi? No, but it, it's, it's, what do we call it? It was, it was based on his books, finishing, finishing. Oh the yeah. Hat finishing the hat and yeah. I, I made a hat and look, look, I made a hat. Yeah. And then we have one guy in the class who is the vegetarian at the barbecue to use the reverse analogy. He just can't have a good time. And it, and it makes you wonder like, why are you coming every week? But his wife really likes Sondheim. So he's doing this for her. And that's an example extrapolating on this idea of what we do for our collaborators is we have to give them a hearing. We have to listen. We have to try. At a certain point, it's just prudent for everybody to say, you know what, this is a sushi situation and we're never right. going to resolve it. You know? I, I like that. Since you brought up Sondheim, you know, one yes. of the things that makes him so extraordinary is his, his toolkit of skills, his nimble gymnastics with words, and he's a very smart guy, but he really relies on the true rhyme to make songs yes. come together. Perfect rhyme, yeah. Yeah, and so just, I don't think people necessarily know what that means. So I just bring it up because it's kind of what helps resolve the tension within the lyrics, right? Yes, it means the, the closing vowel sound of a word and the closing consonant are identical, which means hop does not rhyme with spot. Because hop closes with a P and spot closes with a T. Even though it's the same vowel sound, it doesn't, it doesn't rhyme. And when you listen, especially if you're attuned to listening to musical theater, the, the original reason for perfect rhyme was that you only got to hear the lyric once, typically. And so for the audience, it had to do with clarity. But there's something else at work, which is that your ear and your brain... The same as hearing someone sing slightly out of tune when the uh, P and the T don't rhyme. It's cognitively, it's creating an extra step in your brain. And so it, it doesn't lock for humor. A lot of times people will try for jokes. And if the, the rhyme isn't perfect, the joke won't land because the brain had to do that little extra step or it sounds, it seems mushy in some way. 
it's different for a pop song, right? Where you you, totally. you might use a soft rhyme or a family rhyme. Totally. But in this situation, the perfect yeah. rhyme, as you say, comically, is that punctuation mark where the resolve is the joke and the music and the moment all land together, right? Totally. So, sometimes mentor Oscar Hammerstein talked about the fact that and one day he realized from from looking at photographs of the Statue of Liberty when it was being carved, that the top of the head of the statue was carved and that this was carved before people even knew that there would be airplanes, the only possible things that would ever see the top of the head of the statue in the minds of the people that were the artists who carved it were birds. That was the only thing they could imagine because nobody was going to see the top of this head. And Hammerstein talks about a craftsman carves the top of the head. And that's what the perfect rhyme is about, like a, a truly committed artist craftsman for musical theater. And as you said, for pop music, it is different. Yeah. And they do have a chance to hear things over and over when, when things yeah. are repeating and choruses and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. And getting the meaning isn't that important. Quite often you get the meaning from the pop song rather quickly, usually. So I'm curious about how you transfer your creativity and structure into other creative things in your life. Because I know yes. like you're the pro for building a musical and ratcheting it and riveting it in tight and asking the right questions. But yeah. how does that play into other parts of your life? It does. I serve on a couple of boards and I also work with the kids who are in the Cook County Juvenile Detention Center doing a theater program that's musical theater based, but 90% of the work that is challenging working with the kids in the detention center is around dealing with others, not, not the kids themselves, but the systems within the detention center, the people that have to interact and all of that. And there was a wonderful study at Northwestern University years ago about collaboration and working in theater, being a predictor of the ability to collaborate in business. I mean, they're related. Like collaboration is is really about listening. It's about giving and taking. It's about transforming ideas by being willing to let go of something and watching what happens when a third option shows up. So I think any of that, just being on the board of a not-for-profit, the process of collaboration and listening and learning and helping evolve is really applicable. As far as the structure of storytelling, I think that that's applicable to something as simple as an email. The ability to get to what is important and efficiently, to communicate with care. And I think any any aspect of creating something for someone to experience using words, the idea of storytelling, and especially the kind of discipline that comes with musical theater storytelling can be really useful as a practice. Just in all forms of communication. I think so. Yeah, I agree. And also the meaning of the story, like why are you telling me this is a really good question to ask. Yeah. A friend of mine, Ryan Cunningham, says when you ask somebody to sit in the audience for your musical, you're basically saying for two hours you're going to listen to my opinion and my <laughs> story. And the only thing you're allowed to do is applaud. You can laugh a little bit not at, at what I've written, but you can laugh if I've set you up for a joke. It's pretty one-sided. So it's like another idea is like when I'm in a one-sided communication, like an email essentially starts as a one-sided communication is, is how can I be respectful 
how can I give people what they need to hear to affect the transformation that I hope that they have That's at awesome. the end of, of the experience. Now, you mentioned working with the incarcerated youth. So that intrigues yeah. me because I know, I think it's, I read that it was called uh, Story Catcher's Theater. Yes. To me, that implies that you are working with them to write songs about their life. Yes. They are writing original stories that usually have to do with something that's very important for them to tell the audience that happened to them, which sometimes has to do with a formative experience. It sometimes has to do with a traumatic experience. Other times it has to do with something about someone they love that they want to honor. There are a lot of stories about moms and dads and what what the moms and dads did for them. And they work with us to take those stories over the course of a year, usually based on themes, like the current themes we're working with are belonging and protection. And so we do some games with them to exercise their minds and also to generate some material on on themes, like stories. And we share our own stories, you know, and other stories that have been written. Uh, The program that I'm part of has been going into that facility since the 1990s. And so we have plenty of stories from the past that kids have written that we use to kind of mentor the kids that are currently currently there. And then they, we take those stories over the course of a year. The stories get combined and create a one-act musical that combines usually the stories of 16 or 17 different kids elements of those stories usually a couple of stories are the through line stories but then elements of all the other stories occur and they perform that uh, when we're live and in person they perform that in front of members of the community and their families who come and see the shows and there's a the idea of the audience as a circle with the ensemble that's performing and the idea that the energy is circular and transformative for everybody is a big part of what those shows are do you have a favorite musical? Like I change this quite frequently just because of the way in which a recent experience will draw me to a certain work. For a really long time, A Little Night Music was just a world that I loved to be in, the, the world of that story. But I will have to say that there's a newer musical that came out a few years ago that won uh, the Tony Award called The Band's Visit. Mm-hmm. It's based on an Israeli film. That's an example of a successful transfer of film to stage. And it's about a band from an Arab country that ends up in Israeli territory because they take the wrong bus and it's a, it came out at the same time that another musical that I also quite like, Come From Away, which tells the story of the planes that were diverted during uh, 9-11 to Newfoundland. They're both stories about people from outside a cultural experience experiencing another culture. They're both stories about generosity and hospitality. They're both stories about the transformation that takes place when we open ourselves to others. And they're both really engaging musically. They're not, they don't sound like your typical two, four Broadway show tune and they don't sound like pop music either. They're, they're their own idea. What about the absence of Broadway right now? Are you feeling just is a sort of emotional pang for the people that you work with? Because, you know, as a teacher and a mentor, it must be hard to work on a long form content with no deadline, no showtime, no rehearsal date. What what is going on in that arena for the people that you interface with? 
It's tremendously painful. Even just, I'm, I'm based in Chicago and the artist community here for the people that artists can actually live a pretty good life in Chicago, musical theater performers can. And it's just been tremendously challenging to feel the loss of the opportunity. I hear it from the audience members that I teach in these appreciation classes, like the Sondheim class is an appreciation class. And I hear it from them as well. There's just such a sense of loss of not being able to gather. And it's hard everywhere. But in Chicago, it might be uh, easier than in New York to actually have a family and be a, a an actor or a musical theater performer or a musician. And, you know, a lot of times in, in our, even in our Chicago communities, one of the couple, if it's a couple that's having a child, will give up their performing career so that they can have a family. And now I think a lot of people are just rethinking, what else could I do if I'm going to have a family or if I have a family, what else can I do besides besides this thing? So that's a big loss. Yeah. Well, it is getting to be close to the 11 o'clock number in this interview. <laughs> you want me to sing, Pat? Yeah, if you could. <laughs> and here's what I'd like you to sing. I'd like you to sing some kind of creative instruction so that they have something that they can do, whether it's looking for a story or thinking how, what could be a song or, you know, just some kind of little homework task to the listener that, sure. th that they could pick up. Like a takeaway. We'll call it takeout food. Takeout food, not sushi. Uh, not sushi. <laughs> food analogy works for almost everything. <laughs> yeah. I've been thinking about this just a little bit in terms of what has sustained me during this time and what has sustained some other folks that I know. And one of the things that feeds me in general, going back to food analogy, but feeds me in general, I guess, is the idea of mentoring, how we all want that person to be a mentor. We want to find that person that is specifically nurturing to us and has you know, a life pattern for us to follow or whatever. And then a lot of times, especially as we get older, that person is gone or we never really found them. And so to me, the big learning has been, how do I self-mentor? What things could I do to create that for myself if it's not there in my life? And sometimes it's uh, affinity with a certain artist. Like sometimes it's, you know, for me, Stephen Sondheim, I always return to Stephen Sondheim and, and look at what he's done that's helped me create. Sometimes it's a particular book or a particular work of art that inspires me. But the other piece that is really important to me, and I, again, I mentioned it with the work that I do with the Cook County Juvenile Detention Center and the kids there is being a mentor to other people. It connects us. I think we all, creativity's purpose is not to have an individual experience, but to have a connective experience that makes a transformative difference, both in the person who's creating and the person who is in a way receiving. And like I said, the, the circle of the audience and the circle of what's happening on stage. And I think for myself during this time, the connective experience of sharing what I know about musical theater with people that are interested in creating it or people that are simply appreciating it or the kids who are trying to grapple with their personal stories has been what gives me meaning. You know, it's meaningful to me. So it, it may look unselfish. It's, it's, there's certainly a great amount of gratification that comes from watching people take this wonderful tool of musical theater and transform their lives with it. The difference of coming in at the beginning of a session, seeing the kids with their heads down 
and covered and seeing what happens by the end of two hours when they've sung together and danced together and opened their mind to something new. And same thing happens with audiences. And when we can get back to doing it in person, we won't be limited by doing it with our little squares on our screens. <laughs> I know it's like a Hollywood squares. Uh, um, well, yeah. thank you so much for that reminder. Uh, I know that mentoring is always a learning process for the mentor too, that you have Absolutely. to be thoughtful of what you're sharing. There's a, always an active learning curve going on when you mentor. It's that Oscar Hammerstein quote from The King and I, when you're a teacher by your students, you'll be taught. There's no question that we are taught by the people that we are quote unquote teaching. Well, this has been a terrific conversation. You're generous with your wisdom. I'm hoping that those that don't know anything about musical theater, not that they're not liking the sushi, but I'm hoping that they can appreciate a little bit more when they see the assembly about what kind of time and energy that foundationally gets put down by the writers, by the performers, by the everybody involved, because it is a major construction site yes. to make that final building a nice architecture. And also I would suggest that they not start with Cats, the, the film. So. <laughs> All right, we kind of got a little opinion there, but yes. Just don't start there. Yeah, no, right. You have to acquire a taste for Cats. That's, I think that's a good, in general, you know, don't try to swallow a cat whole. Anyway, I thank you, Cheryl Coons, on behalf of my producer, Amanda Rosenberg. Uh, we just really enjoyed having you here with us at the Creative Candy Counter. Thank you for having me. This was a total joy. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe, and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, under the savvy producership of Amanda Rosenberg with sound editing under the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. With additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Casey Franco, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now.